Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 744th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. And welcome to part two of my amazing conversation with Scott Mann. If you missed part one, go back one episode and listen away. Today on our podcast, we have someone who's changing the world one podcast episode at a time. We're talking with Scott Mann about the ripples of permaculture. Scott is the creator and host of the Permaculture Podcast, the longest running podcast dedicated to permaculture in the world. In more than a decade of producing his show, he has interviewed hundreds of practitioners from authors and scientists to artists and educators working to create abundant solutions that imagine a more beautiful planet for everyone and all life. When not sharing these messages with the world as a way to spend time and care for his growing family, you can find him cooking in the kitchen or playing games around the table, all while heavy metal plays somewhere in the background. Welcome to the show today, Scott. Are you ready to rock permaculture? Absolutely. All right, I'm gonna shift on you. And we're going to talk, I would like for you to talk about a time that you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. So I was thinking about this and it's interesting because my perspective on those visible and invisible structures, my answers to these questions are going to look at kind of both, if that's okay with you. I will Please. try not to take forever, <laughs> um, even though I am verbose because we've now been talking a little over an hour on recording for an hour, and you had said you're normally 40 minutes, but when it comes to my failures, when it comes to the visible structures, early on, after I got out of my PDC, I wanted to plant blueberries because they were the first crop that I became familiar with that I could pick cultivars that would have different characteristics that I could work with throughout the growing season. And based on some reading that I did and talking with the guy who sold me my blueberry plants, I planted my blueberries in hills along the drip line of a maple tree that I had Ooh. so that whenever it would rain, that canopy 
would funnel that water to that drip line to my blueberries. Nice. And the idea with that was that by planting the blueberries on in the hills, that would keep their feet from getting too wet while having all that moisture from the drip line would also help to force those roots deeper and expand the root system. Great idea in practice. Blueberries were beautiful, but I didn't observe long enough. And because I had been on the land for a number of years, but not steeped in permaculture, I look out the into the yard, I see the maple trees, the maple tree. Been there, same basic form, same basic shape, year after year, that's cool. Didn't think about the year-over-year growth pushing that canopy out. And in about three years, the drip line moved just enough that I drowned my blueberries. And got them too wet, Uh. and they weren't able to survive. And that really taught me that observing is important. Yeah. And to go ahead and take the time. That there is that strategy within permaculture that you live on a piece of land or you work with a piece of land for a year before you take any action. And so my lesson from that is take your time, learn the ethics and principles and use them that they weren't written in a vacuum. They really do work. And in the long run, they can keep you from making bigger, more costly mistakes down the road. Thankfully, I had wound up trading, I think it was apple wine, to my nurserymen for those blueberries. So financially, I wasn't out anything, uh-huh. but it was still the time to brew that apple wine, bottle it, age it, trade it with him, and then losing three years of growth on my blueberries. But that then, yes, has informed a lot of my other work since then and reminds me, just take your time. Yeah, and then it's also, I mentioned this earlier, but beyond the landscape, those invisible structures is the podcast itself was a place where I had a ton of failures. As I said earlier, part of it was choosing to call it the Permaculture Podcast. I wish I had named it something more generic and more open so that I could have have tacked in different directions based on the waters that I was navigating over the years. But it's just, it's what I did. It's what I've become known for. And so I continue to produce the show under that name. That's one place where I failed just in... But you've had plenty Action. of success with that. I you've have had plenty of guests, and really, the Urban Farm podcast is all about permaculture mm-hmm. because I've studied it for thirty years. I just called it something different, and you've had success with that. Oh, I've had success I, with it, but for me, individually, personally, there uh-huh. are directions that I've wanted to take the show. But as I've, as I've moved in those directions, the feedback was, "We would prefer if you remain what you are." Ah. Uh which is fine because that success continues, but it's also there are certain spaces that I've considered exploring that I feel would ha- that would serve both listeners and my guests if the name was different. Because there's there are times where permaculture seems to be enter like a pejorative phase where people are like, ah, permaculture, I don't want to deal with that. And then it comes back and it's in vogue again and just those cycles is something different may have helped. But more deeply professionally for the show is that I wish that I would have understood more fully early on that I am an artist and a creator, not necessarily an entrepreneur. And so Uh, even with a show that has been as big as this one has 
over the years and the millions and millions of downloads that I've had, the all the people who've listened, that the podcast and all those episodes has mostly been me doing the work. An average of 50 episodes a year over 12 years, I did all the editing. Mm. I did all the graphics. For many years, I was the person who was managing my website and my hosting. When it comes to booking clients, answering emails, responding to queries like yours to appear on your show, it's all been me. And what I wish I would have done then, earlier, is to have found the people who I want to work with earlier and to partner with them and collaborate frequently. And as I say, 12 years in, I finally learned this lesson. And so, yeah, it's conversations like ours and being on each other's shows, doing a deep dive and finding the people who I have a good time with and who I want to work with, and then finding ways to bring them onto my team or that they could freelance for me or however it is that we figure out how to make it happen. And yeah, now that I'm in my 12th year, I'm finally collaborating and bringing people in more frequently. It's a lot of fun. And it really helps that reach and what I do. It makes it easier on me. It's great to be able to pay people whose work I love for what they do. And yeah, just finding ways to make it work. But yeah, I found my success through collaboration. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things I do. The first level of editing of the podcast. And then I let, I let a hired person, Ken, come in and actually do the clean sweep of the podcast. If I had to do both of those, I'd have burned out a long time ago. So yeah. I hear you on that. Yeah. And that's where I took a long break from the show recently. What was it? During COVID and the pandemic and things, I did, was not producing regularly or releasing regularly for about a year mm-hmm. and a half to take a break. And as this comes out, I am continuing to produce, but I'm changing my relationship with this work so that I don't burn out and yeah. that I can keep doing this for a long time because important. I just love it. It's like personally, right? it's fun. And yeah, like I have an email folder with hundreds of emails in it of people's lives who I have dramatically and radically transformed just by yep. showing up and releasing the show. Yep. And that's amazing. That's, I love that. And yeah. so given that, what do you consider your biggest success? So... Again, visibly in the landscape, as a designer, one of my biggest successes that made me feel really good was designing for flooding. The property that I was on with my oldest children's mother when we were married was an acre that sat on a gorgeous trout stream in Pennsylvania. Oh, nice. But everything but the house was in a floodplain. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So I had a little bit of front yard and a driveway and a couple hundred square feet of side yard that I could garden in and not worry about flooding. But the rest of the yard was in a floodplain. And while we were living there, again, my observation of the first few years there and how flooding occurred were one thing, but due to some development upstream that increased Mm. the amount of flooding that we got downstream and impacted those patterns. And yep. so we lost, we lost several years and several hundred square feet of raised garden beds in wooden boxes that I built because we had a flash flood come through and just washed everything away. 
and it was above every previous flood line that we had observed yep. by many feet, but it was enough of a difference that just washed it all away. And so we moved our main garden into the front yard, which became its own interesting experience because of some letters that we got from some of the neighbors who lived across from us who didn't think that we should be gardening where it was visible versus the other neighbors who would come down and be like, hey, you've got, you got any more strawberries? Can I get some? I figured that was a neutral response between both sides. We continued to garden in the front yard. But then we had another major flood event that caught, I, when I mentioned a four-wheeler earlier rolling through the yard, I was not kidding because oh, we had one. Interesting. And we had a telephone pole come through sideways and level a whole bunch of my elder and other things. Oh my gosh. Uh, really anything that was higher than knee height was leveled because that telephone pole coming through. And seeing that, I was like, okay, we're not doing this again. Because between having everything leveled, it was also because there were other people who lived in this valley. I was picking up diapers, old clothes. Mm. Like I found shattered dressers or pieces of dressers in the yard. And as I was cleaning all of that up, I'm just like, no, we're not doing this again. And so using that idea of being inspired by nature and looking to nature for design, I thought about the baleen plates that baleen whales have. And so on the leading edge of the yard where a lot of the flooding came through, I planted brambles to act as an initial filter for small materials so that I wouldn't be picking up those diapers or clothing or other smaller pieces because those, that wall of brambles would act as a fine filter, but still allow water to flow through. And because of the flexibility of those canes, they're not going to get leveled if something really big comes through unless it is rolling across at ground level. Like it met a lot of my design constraints in that situation. So that was one side where the water comes in. And then behind that, using the shape of a catcher's mitt, I placed a series of willows, planted them in the spring, and they were able to get large enough just in the first growing season by the fall when we usually would get hurricanes and the major flooding. They have this catcher's mitt shape because of one of the other patterns of flooding. It would swell in and swell out like a tide coming in and coming out. And that shape mimicked that so that if anything came from that form, that would help catch a lot of that. And then that shape also then formed a wall that anything that came over the brambles would hit that. And those willows then would protect the, the rest of the yard and our downstream neighbors from things like telephone poles and four-wheelers. And getting to see that in action the following year was just like, yep, this works. That nice. Yeah. I love that. And it was also thinking about trying to stack functions. The brambles still provide food. Yep. Making sure my soil was tested before and after floods to make sure that where they were planted was not going to be having issues with toxins or anything was great. And then with those willows and all, yeah, being able to capture and use those not only as a filter, but then cut those for biomass, either to weave baskets with my son from the bark or to use them to burn in our fireplace during the winter. I was going to so, say, yeah, willows make baskets. Yes. And that's, I've hand split willow to make staves and I've stripped bark in order to make, do it and made all kinds of things. Nice. And yeah, that was just, that was one where I really got to see permaculture 
in action as a response to something like that. And just because of how big it was, those floods felt monumental to respond to. And it was a neat thing. And then in the invisible structure space for me, it's like my biggest success is growing what is honestly a super niche show and subject Mm. into what the permaculture podcast has been over the years. And that even with all these breaks and taking time away that I come back and the show is still receiving tens and tens of thousands of downloads every month. And that now that I'm back to more consistently, like it's growing again and I can see the show back to the place where it is. I'm still in some of the top rankings on iTunes for the show. Never been, as far as I know, like in the top five for many of those listings, but week after week, year after year, I'm in the top 15 to 20 shows on iTunes across various niches, regularly in the top, what is it? I think 200 iTunes, 200 podcasts on iTunes overall, um, based on those stats and everything else. And like, just for being a person with a microphone who decided to do something that feels <laughs> incredible, right? <laughs> being an analyst, being able to see those numbers feel good. But even more than that, it is hearing back from listeners and having been able and continuing to be able to share not only the beauty and depth of permaculture, but also the breadth of it to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And again, being able to do it at no cost to them. And because of my background, I've been able to do it at a low cost for myself. And personally, that creates a legacy that will outlive me for years. Yeah, And it just feels good to do it. And He's smiling. He just, when he said that, when he said that, Scott just lit up. Yeah, we're making a difference for ourselves and others. And yeah, how can we not enjoy that, love it and celebrate it? Amen. And what drives you? I feel like I've touched on a lot of this throughout our interview generally, but I... When the two levels, to go back to what started my biography, I am inspired by what I hear from listeners. I, I think I shared this with you in our conversation, setting up our interviews and follow-up conversations, that there's this emotion that I discovered a number of years ago called Mudita. Oh, yes. And it is the inverse. Say that again. Say that Mudita. again. I don't know if my pronunciation is great because I've never heard it pronounced, but Mudita. Mudita. Okay. M-U-D-I-T-A. And it is the inverse of envy. It is vicarious happiness for others' joy. And it was just something that struck a chord with me. I love it. And that's one of the things that I've continued to seek out and that listeners of the show, friends and colleagues within the community continue to provide to to me because of their successes that come from my inspiration of just doing this work. And then more per- and that's like on a professional level that drives me more personally i just love creating and producing this show i get to as i shared earlier i get to draw on so many different of my own artistic abilities to play with this i can ex- always research something new to share with folks i can try different things and there's never a dull or an uninteresting day doing it <laughs> uh, yeah no, it's nice. just it is phenomenal and i just can't imagine doing anything else in the world. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? 
I'm going to befuddle this again because I'm going to give two book recommendations based on where someone is in their journey. Good. If someone is absolutely new to permaculture, I do feel that the landscape is still the best place to start. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have land of your own, learning about permaculture from a gardening perspective, if you're walking around town or just even being able to observe the natural world around us, having that mindset and looking in those ways is a great place to begin. And so I recommend Toby Hemingway's Gaia's Garden as the first book for folks. I could give people some more like philosophical titles and things that are part of my professional permaculture practitioners first reads. But for somebody who has only heard this word because they found this conversation today, that would be the book that I recommend. My understanding is that it is, was, and remains the number one selling book on permaculture thus far by a very wide margin. By a huge margin. Yep. Like several hundred thousand copies. And so, yeah, I just think it's a good place to start. And I also got to know the late Toby Hemingway fairly well near the end of his life through some email exchanges and conversations we've had or that we had at the time. And getting to know the person who he was, it gave me a deeper, richer understanding of what he put onto the page yeah, and how much he really poured into that. And his voice is one that has resonated with so many other people Big that time. it's just a great place for people to go. If folks have read Gaia's Garden or are a bit further along in their journey with permaculture, maybe they've taken a permaculture design course. The book that I mentioned earlier, which is over my shoulder on the bookshelf today, is Rosemary Morrow's Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. It is the like expanded and updated version of her earlier work. And to me is even better than Bill Mollison's Designer's Manual for Modern Permaculture Practitioners. Wow, nice. And yeah, I combined that with David Holmgren's Retro Suburbia as my core permaculture design course tech. Yes, and that's the urban farm. More of my space is in the urban and peri-urban. And I love what David wrote in there because it's a, a beautiful mix of David's thoughts and the philosophy, as well as practical solutions and projects that people can engage in. So I guess there's three books there, but I would recommend with the other two first. (laughs) And then Toby wrote one called Permaculture City for the end of his life. So that's for those of you that are not putting swales in your yard, because I never put a swale in my yard in Phoenix. I was in the middle of four and a half million people. There wasn't a space for a swale, but there was plenty of space for permaculture. It is. I joke that swales are the darkness that haunt my soul as a permaculture educator Uh because there are these different techniques that seem to become fads at certain periods within permaculture. I remember when it was herb spirals. For me, when I was really getting into my professional career within permaculture with swales, there was a period there after swales where it was hugel culture. I try to avoid a lot of the literature, so I don't know what the current new hotness is. But yes, because of those trends, a lot of times you see the same technique repeated over and over again. So, and I want you to, for those of our listeners that don't know what a swale is, just give us a 30 second. So a swale is a pit and berm solution that can be used to channel water through a site or to increase water infiltration. 
However, when moving water, it, they can very easily be made poorly and do more damage than they are designed to prevent. And so that's why I always go back to the ethics and principles and ask myself, does this land need this technique yeah. that I want to install? And I say that I've seen Google culture and swales on contour where they're amazing. I've seen them used to divert water into ponds, but it can be the line between a well-functioning technique and one that is harmful, damaging, or disruptive. It's not a big line all the time. And yeah. swales are one of those ones that to me living, and this comes from living in a very wet environment being in Pennsylvania, we receive when I was on the land, the last I looked up, it was like 50 inches of rainfall and rainfall equivalent a year. Wow. So yeah. Using something like that in that environment is much different from using it somewhere else that is drier or doesn't right. have that much rainfall. And that's, yeah. again, knowing your landscape, take your time to observe and figure it out. So Awesome. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Practice permaculture. However you come to it, however you heard this conversation, whatever you're doing in your life, use the books or podcasts like Greg's or my own. Go to YouTube and use YouTube University to find the knowledge, tools, methods, and people that resonate with you and what you want to do in the world and just do the work. Don't feel that you need to take a permaculture design course because as Greg and I talked about throughout our conversation today, there are lines about where and when to take that class. There are certain things that will serve you better than others, and that's for you to figure out as you go. And it's more important to me that you do something positive for the world each day than to get lost or trapped in these other frameworks or models or discussions about the right way to do something or the wrong way to do something. You're going to make mistakes regardless of how much education or time or experience you have. But if you don't make those mistakes, you're not going to have the teaching moments. Exactly. And that's for me, failures are not really failures. They're teaching moments because of what they reveal and show us about how we can do things differently at many different levels. And frankly, the world will be better off thanks to the seeds, real or figurative, that your listeners plant today. Amen to that. So if you want to do a meander with Scott, tell us how to do that. Okay. So for meanderings, the you can find those at the permaculturepodcast.com. There's a little entry for those. You click on that. It'll take you through. You can find out all that information. And on that page is also where you can click to schedule your session and manage all of that. That website is also where you will find the archives of the show going back to about 2011. It is not quite a complete archive because I was running into some hosting issues because of just having so much content (laughs) and that jumping from the tier that I'm on and up to another is just, if I'm going to keep this what it needs to be, I can't have all the archives there. But the archives that are available go back to 2011, and there are hundreds of shows there that you can't find on iTunes or elsewhere because of their technical limitations. Um, Mentioning iTunes, 
If people want to find the show, they can search for the Permaculture Podcast wherever they find podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and dozens of others. Look for the Celtic Network Tree of Life logo that says the Permaculture Podcast, but you'll find me. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, and on my website at thepermaculturepodcast.com is also my contact form. If somebody wants to send me a message directly about anything that they've heard today in this conversation with you, Greg, I'd be happy to follow up with them. Or if they're somewhere on their permaculture journey and just have one or two questions that aren't necessarily needing something as big as a meandering, I'm always happy to hear from folks. I only answer email usually like once a week. So if you send me something, and that includes people who fill out that contact form, know that I may not get back to you immediately, but I will get back to you. And that's the best way to get in touch with me. Perfect. Oh my God. If I waited a week to answer my email inbox, there would be 3000 emails in there. It is why I set a day aside to do it a week. (laughs) There you go. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Scott. Yeah, it's been a great time, Greg. And thank you for making this opportunity in the space to allow me to be the storyteller that I am and to talk through so many of these things that are important to me as a podcaster within the permaculture community. And I look forward to continuing to collaborate and future conversations. Yeah, big time. And this has been so much of what I get on the podcast, the Urban Farm podcast, is the the branches of permaculture and the how-tos. And this has been a much more philosophical dive at it, which I needed this at this point. Having moved, lived in Phoenix for 54 years, and just this past year moved, took myself out of the place that I absolutely knew how to garden and moved into a place that I don't have a clue how things work here from a, I know the basic structure of permaculture, but I don't know the branches of permaculture here. It's because it's so different than it was in Phoenix. And our conversation today has given me an opportunity to expand my thought process past gardening, past the permaculture pieces that are assumed and into some more philosophical stuff, which I'm really excited about. And I'm really excited to share this with your audience, to get my audience to listen to this conversation and to share the conversations that we will have that follow this, Mm -hmm. that are public facing, because I know for me, and I wonder if you feel the same way about this sometime, is that we are in a form of media that you can do on your own that doesn't have any of these other structures. While in our day-to-day lives, we are doing so much that it doesn't always give us time to develop the relationships to our colleagues to have these kinds of conversations. Exactly. Right. We have people in the community who may be peers because of the time that they've been doing it or the knowledge that they have about certain practices. But the number of peers that we have that are also in the media space to be able to talk about the minutia of not only creating a podcast, but how do you record a good interview? What mm-hmm. kind of conversations are you having? What arises because you've had 15 different conversations this year on a particular topic that are changing your thoughts? And so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to being able to continue our dialogue on and off air 
and see what it inspires for both of us personally and professionally and where it takes our work and that of our listeners, because there is so much that we can do that is more than any one of us is capable of, but we're all here living into that ethic of people care and helping others get to where they want to be. So we each have our role to play in that. And I'm really glad that you're here as a part of that, Greg, and for making this invitation for us to connect and be able to share all of this and continue it all. Thank you, Scott. I so appreciate you and look forward to playing. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash permaculture podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.